today on Point of the Spear. One of the things that had really occurred to me over the years is that one of the last kind of un, un, uh, unexplored aspects of, uh, of World War II from an American standpoint was the Army's experience in the Pacific. Uh, I noticed that there was this kind of uh, mythology or, or sort of misconception, maybe is a better word, um, all these years later that uh, when it came to the ground fighting in the Pacific, that the Marines had really done the ground fighting, the Navy did everything else, and the Army focused on Europe, and that couldn't have been more untrue. Esteemed military historian John McMintz is here to talk about his new book on the Pacific War, and we'll hear from him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. Today's guest is one of America's leading military historians and a recipient of the prestigious Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History. He is an in-demand speaker and expert commentator on CNN, Fox News, Discovery, Smithsonian Network, and more. His latest book is called Island Infernos, the U.S. Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. And author John McManus joins us now. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. You're very welcome. The book is getting a lot of high praise. Congratulations, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's the second in a trilogy that I'm doing about the Army in the Pacific. So I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I read that, that it is the second installment. And what were your reasons to dive into the Pacific War? Mm. Was, was there a compelling reason to, to go into that? Yeah, you know, as, um, as a, a primarily World War II historian, although, you know, I've done more than just that, but that, that, is, that has been, to a great extent, the focus of a lot of my books. Um, you know, you're, you're always thinking about original sides of the war that haven't really been explored the way they should be. And uh, especially for me as a, as a, you know, again, a kind of a primarily U.S. historian, uh, one of the things that had really occurred to me over the years is that one of the last kind of un, un, uh, unexplored aspects of, uh, of World War II from an American standpoint was the Army's experience in the Pacific. Uh, I noticed that there was this kind of uh, mythology or, or sort of misconception, maybe is a better word, um, all these years later that uh, when it came to the ground fighting in the Pacific, that the Marines had really done the ground fighting, the Navy did everything else, and the Army focused on Europe, and that couldn't have been more untrue. Um, 1.8 million American ground soldiers served in, in the Pacific in World War II. It's the third largest army we've ever sent overseas to fight a war. Uh, so I knew there was a massive story there, and then that could tell us a lot more about the Pacific War, and I think really a lot of subsequent history ever since. Yeah, there is that impression that the Marines did all the all the, all the fighting in the Pacific. You're, that is That per impression is there. How would you compare the uh, intensity of the combat in the jungles of the Pacific as opposed to the forests of Europe? Mm. It may even be, I mean, it was pretty pretty intense in Europe, of course, um, and I wouldn't, wouldn't downplay that, but uh, I think perhaps it's even more intense in the war against Japan, um, you know, in the many jungles where, where this war is fought and uh, the, the terrible, terrible wildernesses <laughs> where, where a lot of this was going on and, and cave warfare, you know, um, and, and one of the reasons for the greater intensity is that uh, I think, as you may know, that many of the Japanese simply elected to fight to the death. 
Um, yeah. And so it really wasn't like, you know, you outflank a group of enemy and they know they're kind of checkmated and they, they lay down their arms and they go into a POW cage like often happen in Europe. Um, here in, in the Pacific, what I compare it to is it's as if uh, you've got a shattered mirror um, and you police up most of the big, uh, you know, pieces of the of the shattered mirror, but there's always these jagged edges out there. And a lot of Pacific theater battles are like that in the sense that the Americans have won what they want, uh, an air base or an island or a harbor or whatever it is, uh, but there's still Japanese out there who are determined to resist. And so you, you constantly have to deal with those jagged edges of Japanese resistance, uh, many of whom have been outflanked too, uh, you know, during the island hopping. Did you find that that was the case with the Japanese through, through the end of the war, even though they, towards the mm -hmm. end, it was clear that they weren't, weren't going to win the war? Or did they ever accept that? You're seeing a kind of a mixture toward the end of the war. Um, certainly many Japanese fighting to the death, uh, most famously, of course, on Okinawa, uh, where many are just, just fighting to the bitter end, including, of course, uh, the, the Japanese commander, General Ushijima. Um, you're seeing some of that in the Philippines. But by the, the mid-late summer 1945, when it is becoming clear, uh, at least to some, uh, Japanese that the that the, the war is about over. You are starting to see some some surrenders, some larger mass surrenders. So, for instance, um, by the, according to the records that I found, the, the U.S. I think like by the end of 1944 had maybe like 4,000 Japanese military POWs in custody or something. Um, you know, at, at Okinawa alone, we take 7,400 you know, by, by the end of June and into July. In the Philippines, of course, many more. So you're seeing a little bit of a mixture in that regard, uh, that the dams were opening toward the end. But also, too, I think, as we as many of us know famously, uh, some of these guys were unreconciled to it and were in the jungles for years. Uh, the yeah. last guy surrendered in Guam in 1972. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you sort of have that, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read those stories where they... Uh... They walk out into the, you know, into the modern day era and they. <laughs> they don't right. And they're like, what am I looking at here? You know, that yeah. I mean, post VJ Day, um, it was a major operation, not just for the U.S., but for the allies um, to to get Japanese soldiers to lay down their arms wherever they were. It could be Manchuria, it could be other parts of China, uh, jungles in the South Pacific, the, the Dutch East Indies, Philippines. Uh, there were, you know, well over a million Japanese military personnel who are going to surrender in that six to 12 month period. Um, you know, and that was a big effort. Was there ever a, a, an order to stand down that was uh, issued? To there is. And it, it's coming from Imperial General Headquarters in Tokyo. Uh, and of course, some commanders don't want to believe it or perhaps resist it or um, or are reluctant to comply for whatever reason. Uh, but more commonly, once they got that directive, they they do they are they are going to stand down, and they felt that okay, well then you know our honor is still clean because the emperor himself, through imperial general headquarters, has told us to do this, and so now it's okay. And of course, famously, this is this applies to General Yamashita in the uh, in the Philippines, um, who fights to the bitter end on Luzon, and only comes out of the the jungle, um, you know, once he gets that imperial directive. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, some reviewers have said, or several have mentioned, that you've given much-needed attention to black soldiers in the Pacific mm -hmm. War. 
Did you find that their stories were being untold? I, I you know, I think sort of lost in the mix more than untold. Um, that they were there for the taking, but but I think, you know, maybe uh, you, it's better to have a kind of 21st century perspective on this, so having seen where the civil rights movement went after World War II um, and the struggles many African-American soldiers had during and after the war. Um, I, I think that uh, it, it allows us as Latter-day historians to have that kind of perspective advantage. So um, yeah, I do cover the experiences of African-American soldiers in, in a you know, significant amount of depth, especially on Bougainville, where a lot of the, the, the sort of racial drama plays out. Um, you have a, an African-American uh, infantry division, the 93rd, that's sort of introduced to combat there. And unlike pretty much every other unit in the U.S. Army, they don't get the opportunity to just sort of find their way in combat, make mistakes, you know, learn what they're doing and, and move on. They are sort of this, this sort of, um, you know, example of all for all black soldiers kind of thing. And so you've got, you can see the divide in America at that point in time between the pro-segregation sort of racism crowd and the civil rights crowd who are battling uh, very much politically in Washington. So the 93rd becomes kind of the, if you're for or against, if you're for, you're, you're, trumpeting any kind of um, accomplishment that they have saying these guys are great see this show segregation is bad and then if you're against any mistake they make oh we'll see you know black soldiers won't fight and all this yeah. and, and the, tragically it's the the latter view that, pre that prevails when there's a fiasco of a patrol and which by the way happens to most every unit in the introduction to combat and it happens to this unit and you know that happens so but this became a kind of larger kind of political football. And so black soldiers were largely consigned to uh, non-combat duty, unloading ships, uh, engineers to build things and, and uh, maintain the bases. And, and this was true until mostly the end of the war in the Philippines, where it was starting to change a little bit. But you, so you see that kind of undercurrent of, uh, of racial tension there um, within this larger American war effort. And I think there's some really good lessons to take from that. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be author and retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Ed Sherwood discussing his book, Courage Under Fire. These were not Viet Cong, your regular soldiers. These were well-trained, well-disciplined, well-equipped North Vietnamese Army regulars. Mm. And they were in a bunker complex about the size of an American football field, if you can imagine over 15 or 16 bunkers with mutual su supporting fires and heavy vegetation. And they let us walk right into that. That's next time. Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description. Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. That sounds a lot like the experience of the 92nd in Italy, where they... Initially, yep. were assigned, you know, perimeter duty and non-combat roles until they were actually needed because uh, they were running. They didn't have a replacement duty. Right, and that's yeah, that's a great point, Rob, because it, it's so similar. Um, the, the the only difference I would say of the ninety third is they they have the beneficiary. They're the beneficiaries of better leadership. In the ninety second, Ned Allman, you couldn't have picked a right. worse division commander for the, for an African American unit. Um, fortunately, the 93rd has generals John, has a general named Johnson and, a, and a, uh, another one named Boyd 
who are, who are very pro-integration and, and uh, generally pro-African-American soldiers. And they're like advocates. But even then, you know, the larger powers that be aren't always putting it on the record, but it's clear they they don't really want to get involved in the race issue and they don't want the black soldiers there. And so it also gives us an insight in the fact that the Americans can afford to sidetrack uh, combat manpower, quality combat manpower, um, and still somehow win this war. It's embarrassing in a way and yeah. sad, but it also shows you the, the kind of American largesse that's there too, um, yeah. that you can afford to kind of waste this human capital uh, you know, a lot of soldiers who were well-trained and willing to fight that were not making use of them, even in the bitter end in the Philippines in some cases. Yeah, I know the 93rd came from mainly Fort Hukachuka in Arizona, right? Right. They were, they were trained there. Um, 1944 was a pivotal year in the Pacific War. What, in your view, was the, the battle that turned the tide? Yeah, I think I see 1944 as a kind of pivot point. Um, I think the the tide of the war overall had turned earlier, like during Guadalcanal and Buna and uh, Midway. Um, I think in 1944, uh, really the sort of the key battles are are fought in the Marianas. Um, okay. What the, what Normandy is to Europe in terms of like a pivot point to final victory. Um, and, and the beginning of the end for Germany, the Marianas in the summer of 1944 are for Japan. And the reason is um, when the U.S. takes Saipan, Guam, and Tinian, uh, the U.S. is now going to have air bases from which to bomb the Japanese home islands. And that'll happen, you know, by the end of 1944. And that's really kind of the game changer that, that now brings the war to, to Japanese shores in a very, very destructive and meaningful way, ultimately with fire bombings and whatever else. Um, that begins with the Marianas campaign. It also breaks the back of uh, the Imperial Navy to some extent because of uh, US naval victories and uh, completely crushes uh, some ground formations that the Japanese could not afford to lose primarily on Guam and Saipan in major battles. So I, I cover those in a great deal of depth. I see. Well what were some of the lessons America took from the Pacific War, do you believe? Yeah, I mean, you see these long-term harbingers. Um, you know, for one thing, the, like the brutality of the fighting um, really characterizes pretty much all American wars ever since. Um, that we're facing, we tend to face enemies that don't follow the same like rules of warfare that we think we want to follow and, and are followed more often than not in Europe, I would say, you know, just as a general rule of thumb. Well, in, in the Pacific, you don't see that. For instance, uh, you know, the Japanese are shooting medics anytime they can and and happy to do it. Um, and, and that's going to be true for the North Koreans and the, the Chinese in Korea. It's going to be true for the Viet Cong and the NVA. It's going to be true in the in Desert Storm and in the 21st century wars and this idea of rules of warfare. And so it forces the Americans to kind of grapple themselves with what are their own rules of warfare, their rules of engagement, what do they stand for? So there's that. There's um, a kind of a special operations legacy that you see because um, you're, you're battling for cultural influence in so many places like Burma, uh, like China, uh, like the Philippines, uh, you know, many other places around the Pacific. Uh, so you're seeing uh, American soldiers perform in missions that are similar to what special forces are going to do later. Um, you see the importance of working with allies um, and even culturally similar allies like Australia and Britain, there are major disagreements and problems, much less Chiang Kai-shek and China, 
Right. Uh, and I really think in some ways that's the most most tragic lesson not learned in a way is um, how to have influence in China and the importance of China relative to the rest of the war. Um, it obviously doesn't turn out the way the Americans would have hoped on any level. Right. Now, Island Infernos is the second book in the series, and it was a, a trilogy, wasn't it? It was planned as a trilogy, and I've read places where this is the final book in the series. Is that correct? No, this is the second book. So uh, the first book was called Fire and Fortitude, and it covers 1941 to 43. So I start with Pearl Harbor, and I end with the invasion of Macon in November of 43 by the 27th Division. Um, Island Infernos begins uh, at the beginning of 1944 and ends with that year. Uh, okay. So we begin in the, the Battle of Kwajalein, January, February, and then we end with uh, Leyte, with the, the invasion and subsequent Battle of Leyte, October to about the end of 1944, though fighting lingered on for months in 45 too. But uh, yeah, so in between, you just see um, there, there's this sense of this kind of growing American power. Uh, by 1944, the army had become an incredibly sophisticated and complex and professional and potent uh, military force. Um, right. and, and it's in 1944 that you really see this start to play out as American power globally uh, begins to expand. Uh, and of course, you know, obviously Normandy is the prime example of that in Europe, but you're seeing the, much the same thing in the Pacific with MacArthur's campaigns from the Admiralties and the invasion of uh, Hollandia, and then subsequently on to Biak, and then of course the Philippines, and then in the Central Pacific, from Kwajalein all the way through to uh, uh, obviously the, the Marianas, and then Peleliu, and all this kind of. So it's just, it, there's so many balls that the the planners are juggling, and it, this takes massive American military power to pull this off. So, the third book in the series, what is that title? It's tentatively titled To the End of the Earth, and it'll cover 1945, so the end of the war. Um, so so it's chronological in that sense. So Island Infernos um, covers exclusively 1944. Um, and of course, of course, it's it's reprising many of the same individuals whom we've looked at in Fire and Fortitude, most notably, you know, General MacArthur, or General Eichelberger, but also POWs. So I, I cover the POW experience in all three books. Um, of what that was like, a uh, horrible experience, of course. And I focus on four um, primary, um, excuse me, primary individuals. General Wainwright, of course, who was the ranking prisoner. Harold K. Johnson, who was more at the mid-level and one day is Army Chief of Staff, but he's a remarkable like field-grade figure in that era. And then two enlisted soldiers, a guy named Lester Tenney, who was a tanker, um, and is and is captured, and another guy named named uh, Michael Campbell, who was a an infantry soldier. Uh, so again, it's like anything through these three books, you see these various individuals in the course of the Pacific War. How much do you get into some of the naval engagements? Because I did a documentary several years ago on the USS Franklin, and mm. that was obviously hit in 1945, March. Do you touch upon any uh, naval engagements? I know this is about the army. Mm -hmm. I do, um, and most notably the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which, okay. of course, dramatically impacts uh, the Battle of Leyte itself. Obviously, that's an air, land, sea battle in the same fashion that Guadalcanal had been. Uh, so what happens on October 24th to, say, 26th at sea certainly impacts MacArthur's operations on land and the Japanese, too. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that, that uh, 
you know, I have the, the kind of in-depth treatment of battles like Leyte Gulf that you, that you could get from from really proper naval historians like Ian Toll. Um, but I do link it to, to these ground operations because, and I, what I hope the reader comes away with is a sense of how interdependent the services are, um, that the Army isn't going anywhere without the Navy. And, you know, obviously the Pacific War is a naval war to some extent and an air war to get air bases and all that. But in the end, some poor schlub had to fight and win on the ground. Um, and that's where, and that's where we're creating our logistical base of support, and and all of these other factors that are coming into play. What I would say, almost like human factors. Uh, so, so what I do is I, I I take the naval battles into account far enough uh, that we can get a good understanding of how that impacts the ground battles too, and maybe vice versa. The book is called Island Infernos: The U.S. Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. John, thank you so very much for being on the show. This has been great. Yeah. Rob, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be author and retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Ed Sherwood discussing his book, Courage Under Fire. These were not Viet Cong, your regular soldiers. These were well-trained, well-disciplined, well-equipped North Vietnamese Army regulars. And they were in a bunker complex about the size of an American football field, if you can imagine. Over 15 or 16 bunkers with mutual supporting fires and heavy vegetation. And they let us walk right into that. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today, and thank you for your support.